I am so excited about this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand with me and turn to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 20. Let's just stand and honor God as we read His Word this morning. Exodus 20, the first six verses in the English Standard Version. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Father, this morning, by the power of the Holy Spirit of God, we grant, ask you to grant us an enlarged view of our great God. Open our hearts by divine light through Holy Scripture and the operation of your Spirit to see your greatness, your grandeur, your glory, your holiness, your power, your sovereignty, your might. Oh God, we realize this morning that we don't need things this morning. We need God. We need you to reveal yourself to us through your Son, Jesus, and in Holy Scripture, so that our hearts are bowed before you and we are caught up in your glory. We ask this at the beginning of this series, in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. You may be seated. I think uh, in some ways what I'm going to do this morning, begin this morning, is a series that is the most important I've ever done in the years that I've been in teaching ministry. It's called A God Worth Knowing, and I want to take several weeks here at Trinity to do something that it occurred to me maybe many of you have never experienced. This focus, this series will focus entirely on one thing, discovering and for some of us, perhaps rediscovering the true person of God as he is revealed in Holy Scripture. Probably a lot of us in this room this morning have never sat through a series of messages devoted entirely to the subject of God himself. Not what God might do for us or what he requires us to do for him but a series focused totally on one thing, studying and glorifying the nature and attributes of our wonderful God. And we're not doing this, I want to say at the outset, we're not doing this sort of dispassionately like a student studies a biology textbook. We are doing it because we have a vested interest in knowing our God. We want to actually learn what our God is like so that as a result, we might know Him personally. How many remember in John 17 when Jesus was praying to His Father? 
in the great high priestly prayer of John 17. And he made this statement in prayer. He is praying to the Father, and in his prayer, he is asking the Father to glorify him, which he says he has actually done by giving him uh, eternal life, or giving him authority to give eternal life to all those whom the Father has given him. And then Jesus defines eternal life in John 17, 3. He says, this is eternal life that you, they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Notice how Jesus defines eternal life in John 17.3. He doesn't define it quantitatively, like we so often do. Like if you ask most people who are even in the church, what is eternal life? They will probably say it is life without end, and it certainly is. But that's not what Jesus, or how Jesus defines eternal life in this text. He defines it not quantitatively, but qualitatively. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the true and only God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now again, we know that eternal life, if you possess it this morning, and it is the possession of a Christian only, it's not something you're given by your first birth, it is the, it is the result of a second birth. We know that that is life without end, quantitative life. And those of us that are saved this morning have the privilege of knowing that we have eternal life. It will never end, and we will be with our glorious Lord forever. Are you excited about that? But Jesus says eternal life is a quality of life, not just a quantity of life. And that quality begins the moment a man or a woman is regenerated or born again. They immediately are brought into personal knowledge of God. I remember as a young believer in Miami, Florida in 1971, I didn't even know the Bible yet, but I knew that I knew God. And I walked around and and, and I would say that to people. I, I don't know how it happened, but I know God. Now, that sounds brash. You know, there are people... I remember talking to rabbis in Miami Beach, Jewish rabbis who said, what kind of upstart are you to tell us you know God? And I would say to them when I was debating them, but I do, I know him. And that's what happens when a man or a woman is born of God. They receive a quality of life, an inner intuitive ability to know God, and that knowledge isn't complete when you're first saved. How many know it starts and God intends as you walk with Him for that knowledge to continually grow? Scripture is replete with exhortations by the apostles for Christians to grow. Listen to Colossians 1 where Paul in his prayer says in the prayer that we might increase in the knowledge of God. And then Peter, at the end of his second letter, closes the letter out and says to believers, grow in grace, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But the question we want to ask this morning to launch this series with is this, and I want to say it at the beginning. How do we navigate on the road to knowledge of God? 
What do we need in order to journey into a growing and deeper knowledge of God? Well, that's exactly what this series is about. I want to show you that if you are going to properly navigate into this journey and navigate on the journey into the knowledge of God, you must start by, first of all, making sure you have carefully checked the road map. Now, get me clear on this because it's so important. God intends for each of us to personally know Him and experience Him, but our first responsibility is always to make sure first that we have the right information about Him. I want to yell it from the rooftop. There's stuff being said about God in the church that isn't true. In other words, the roadmap helps us make sure that the God we are pursuing is the biblical God. Now this is called theology. And it's wonderful. it's, it's, It's what Scripture teaches about God, who He is, what He does, and what His plan is. And there are some people, and I hear it often, they say, well, I'm simple. I'm not into theology. I just want to experience God directly. I don't want to worry about having a lot of information about God. There's a problem with that, and it's this. It ignores something fundamental that Scripture teaches, and it is that it has to be understood at the beginning, and it is the fact that no one can know God apart from the fact that He has revealed Himself to us. And brothers and sisters, that revelation is contained in Scripture. Now don't get me wrong, before, along with Scripture, God allows us to experience Him, and the Spirit of God working with Scripture reveals God. But before we rush off into pursuing knowledge of God, make sure that you've checked the roadmap and you know fundamental things about the God you are pursuing. J.I. Packer in his classic book, Knowing God, talks about the importance of this in the journey of knowing God. And he uses the example of taking a native from the Amazon uh, region of South America who's never been out of the jungle and dropping him in London and giving him no explanation and telling him nothing about London and then saying, be blessed, go experience London. And he said to do that would be unkind because you've not prepared him. You must give him some explanation of what London is like. Can you imagine this native walking around and looking at the skyscrapers and the buildings and wondering, what is this? In the same way, if you and I do not have some basic biblical understanding of what God is like, what he expects, what it is like to actually know him, You will be lost and subject to your own subjective whims and ideas of what God is like. But I feel stupid for reminding you of this, because let me ask you if you're a Christian this morning, why wouldn't you want to learn everything there is to learn about God anyway? I remember when I was first dating Shelly, I wanted to learn everything about her. 
I wanted to know her personally by hanging out with her, but I also wanted to learn her ways. I wanted to know what she liked, what she doesn't like, what made her mad, which I found out quickly, (laughs) what made her happy. And that was part of our growing relationship. I learned her ways. I learned what pleased her, what didn't please her. I wanted to please her, so I found it necessary to study her. And I still am. So let me say at the outset that one of the burdens in this series is that we would together personally pursue the roadmap so that we may personally know him intimately and personally. Now there's a danger though in studying the roadmap to find out what God like is God like. It's the other side of the coin. Because there are people in the church who are very diligent to study their Bibles and take notes and make sure their theology is sound and they got all their ducks in a row. But they can often forget something that I want to remind you of. And it is that you can know a great deal about God without having great knowledge of God. It is possible to study this book like a textbook and memorize all kinds of facts about God without really knowing Him. And I have met people whose heads are full of Bible knowledge, but they have no love. Whose heads are full of theology, but they live ungodly lifestyles. Now don't react to that as people do and say, well, put your Bible down. You just need to experience God. That shouldn't be our conclusion. What we should conclude is not that we don't need our Bibles, but we need our Bibles to know what God is like, and then we need to plunge into the deep waters of experiencing God personally. There may be some of you listening to my voice this morning, and man, you are lost in this message because You don't know anything about knowing God, and it is because you're not a Christian. You've never experienced being born again. You've never been regenerated and never came into a personal knowledge of God. There are people here who spent years in the church thinking they were saved because they went to church and did church things who one day the Spirit of God revealed they were unregenerated and they had to come to a place of repentance, faith, and receiving the gift of eternal life. If you're here this morning, the greatest gift I could give you is this series makes you aware of the fact that you are a stranger to the knowledge of God. But those of us who know God, that are hungry to study Scripture to find out what God is like, need to remind ourselves that we study theology for a specific reason. Packer, again, in Knowing God, says, quote, we need to ask ourselves, what is the ultimate aim and object in occupying my mind with these things? What do I intend to do with my knowledge about God once I have it? He then warns, the fact we have to face is this. If we pursue theological knowledge for its own sake, it is bound to go bad on us. It will make us proud and conceited. So what's the answer? It's not to put our Bibles aside, but it is to ransack our Bibles from cover to cover to learn all we can about our great God so that we may press in to know Him personally and accurately. When I was reading 
One of my favorite Psalms, I, I stay in it often, Psalm 119. How many have ever read Psalm 119? 176 statements about the Word of God. And you can read in this Psalm that the psalmist has this tremendous thirst for knowledge of God. But he he doesn't seek knowledge for knowledge's sake. He seeks the knowledge of God's word that he might have practical ability to live a godly life. He says things like, thy word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's not just theoretical knowledge. He wants the knowledge of God to lead him to a life that pleases God. You might say it this way. The psalmist was interested in truth and theology, not as end in, ends in themselves, but as a means to the end of life and godliness. So as we start this journey together as a church over the next several weeks, is it in your heart to pursue the knowledge of God so that knowledge may indelibly imprint itself in your life and change the way you live? But there is even a more fundamental reason that we need to know our Bibles clearly when it comes to knowledge of God. And it brings us to our text this morning. It is our proneness towards idolatry. What we read this morning, if you're not familiar with it, is God's word at Mount Sinai to a million Jews who stood there entering covenant with God, and God thundered what is called in Hebrew the Ten Words. We call them the Ten Commandments. And the first one is critical because it deals with human proneness towards idolatry. God clearly says, identifies himself, and if you know anything about the Ten Commandments, you know that it is written and framed in the context similar to other covenants when kings, when ancient kings entered into covenants with conquered people, they had these covenants took on a certain form. And everybody who studies the Ten Commandments says the form of the Ten Commandments itself lends itself to covenant uh, in the ancient world. But the first thing God says is the forbidding of any gods other than the true God. And God was so fastidious about this, he repeats it in the following verse and says you shouldn't even make an image of what you think God is like. Now this command is very important because God knew that Israel would eventually land in the end up in the land of Canaan, and in Canaan there were all kinds of gods, and the danger was that they would seek after a god in their own liking. But we often lessen the severity of this commandment because we think of idolatry only as a guy sitting before a stump of a tree and worshiping a totem pole. That's certainly idolatry. But there's another aspect to idolatry that this command speaks to. That I want you to hear this morning. And it is the tendency of fallen human beings to make something other than the true God ultimate. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Pastor Tim Keller defines idols, listen to this, as anything more important to you than God. 
anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And in this context, this command not only speaks to the actual act of setting up false gods, which I doubt seriously anyone's doing. Uh, if, if you are intending after the service to go home and cut down a tree in your backyard and worship it, see me at the end of the service. I will dissuade you. But this command goes much deeper because it deals when God forbids any image or likeness, it deals with something else we as fallen human beings have to address. It is this. It is the tendency that we have to distort the image of the true God so that we remake him after our own image and likeness. Have you noticed the tendency in your heart to do this? If you haven't, you ought to be a student of it because it's part of our fallenness and our sinfulness that we want to remake God into an image so he's nice and manageable and tame just the way we like him. For example, we don't really want a sovereign God who does what he pleases. We want a God who's manageable and lives to please us. We don't want a God that's mysterious and whose ways are past finding out, but one who's always there at our beck and call to do what we think is best. We end up doing what Romans warns against, which is in fact the reason pagans become pagan. He says, God's knowledge can be known through creation, but we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And that means exactly what it says. It says the true knowledge of God is screaming out at pagans, but they suppress it. It's not that they can't know God. They won't know God because to know God would inevitably mean you have to change. So instead of changing, I'm going to suppress it. I, I'm holding it back. I, it's screaming at me, but I don't want to acknowledge it. And we will cover that in Romans 1 in a few weeks when we talk about the wrath of God as Romans chapters 1 and 2 and the beginning of 3 show us the guilt of the entire world and why are sinners guilty? Because whether they are Jews with the law or Gentiles having the law written in their hearts, men and women suppress the truth. They don't want it to be true. That's why it's one of the reasons God gave us Scripture so we might come to it with an open heart and mind saying, God, show me what are you really like? Now let me jump forward and ask a question that will become very important as we navigate through this series. What happens to us, what should we expect will happen to us when we encounter the knowledge of God? What should we expect? I believe the Bible teaches that three things will be true for every man and woman who, hungry for God, presses in to learn of God's ways through Scripture. Number one, they will experience the fear of God. Number two, they will experience the love of God. And number three, they will develop an insatiable 
hunger, an immense hunger for God. The fear of God, the love of God, the hunger for God. Let's start with the fear of God. When men and women come to know the true and living God, they will learn to fear Him. Now this is important to say because there's many in the church that believe that God has changed from the Old to New Covenant. In the Old Testament, He used to get angry a lot. He had a little bit of a temperament. I mean, I've had people think we've really changed gods at Calvary. God was angry in the Old Testament, but he's, Christ came and placated him, so we shouldn't be afraid anymore, and God doesn't get angry anymore. I'd like you to know that is a damnable lie. There are two aspects of God's being that we in the church always need to hold in tension together or we find ourselves in error. One is called transcendence, the other is called imminence. Transcendence means God is other. He is above. He is separate. Imminence means he's near. He's close. He knows the number of hairs on my head. Now, how can they both be true? They are. But the fear of God is developed as we meditate on this quality of God called transcendence. And in a word for saints, I don't want to make this heady, transcendence means God is other. He is above. He is greater. He is separate. He is unlike anybody else you know. He's not just our big buddy who gives us parking spaces and pays our bills. He's the awesome, all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign God of the universe, the creator of the ends of the earth, in whose hands are the depths of the earth, who immediately and instantaneously has personal knowledge of every human being on the planet, including the numbers of hairs on every head. He is separate. And we teach people in the church, don't be afraid of God. Don't be afraid of God. I'd like to counter that. Be very afraid. You know, when God thundered his words from Mount Sinai, a million Jews were petrified and they shook and they said to Moses, we don't want to hear God. You go and listen to God and bring us his word. And you know what God said about that? We would have said, don't be afraid. Come near. But the people were told, God said to Moses, I know that the people tremble when I speak. Oh, that there was a heart in them to fear me always. Brothers and sisters, the church desperately needs a baptism of the fear of God. I don't mean a cringing fear, and we'll deal with that in a minute, that keeps us at, at length. But a fear of God which comes as a result of a proper understanding of his nature and character so that we walk before him. There's far too much flippancy in the church. God is awesome and he is transcendent. And when we meet him, fear is the result. A healthy respect, a reverence. We are talking, folks, about God. But the second thing we experience is the love of God. Now, this goes along with what I've been saying for weeks, that to walk in the gospel, you have to know two things. 
You're far worse than you ever imagined. You're far more loved than you ever imagined. And with the fear of God, we need to understand the love of God. Listen to this. When you realize, when you realize the great gulf between a holy God and sinful creatures, you will know that it is only the love of God manifested in the death of Jesus that could ever bridge that gulf. And when you know personally that at one time in your life you were an object of God's holy wrath, And you know what God in Christ did for you. So that now, the love of God is poured out in your hearts through the Holy Spirit. When you know that, you will be changed by that love. How much you appreciate God's love depends on how much you fear Him. That's why in the church there's often this syrupy kind of emotional idea of God's love. That is sickening. That's not the love of God. Listen to me. You were under wrath. You and I were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. God had every reason justifiably to send us to a Christless eternity. But the only reason you're not going is not because you're nice or smart or good looking or God couldn't live without you. It was God's grace alone that poured out His love in your life and now you're the object of love not because you're lovable but because you're in Christ and God passionately loves His Son. I ask people... Why do you think God loves you? I don't know, Matt, because I tithe, because I pray, because I read. He doesn't love you because you do those things. Some of you don't do them, and He loves you. Little plug for Paul's exhortation. You can't earn this love. You should do those things because love transforms you, but you can't earn this love. You and I who are children of wrath. And the more we see God in His ultimate, infinite majesty and glory, the more we gaze in wonder. That's why the book of Ephesians so aptly describes this when Paul says, We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And listen to this, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Well, what made the difference? Listen to this glorious statement in verse 4. But God, 
being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith. God did not have to love you because you were so lovable. You were a child of wrath, so was I. But the love of God has been poured out in Christ as a gift. And by the way, it works the other way too. The deeper we understand God's love for us in Christ Jesus, the more profound our reverence and awe of Him will be. It works both ways. The more we know God's holiness, the more we know the fear of God, we know we were objects of His wrath. But the more we know His love, the more we will fear Him. That's why David said, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with Thee, that you may be feared. And the third quality, which is yours when you come to know the God of Scripture, is the fear of God and the love of God produce a thirst for God. What comes to mind this morning when I use the word godly? What does it mean to be a godly man or woman? For many people in the church, it has a moral connotation, and that's biblical. It does carry a moral aspect to it. But godliness is not first and foremost morality. There are people who have morality that aren't godly. Godly people are men and women who are centered in God, who are passionate about God. They are moral because they are God-centered and they have been changed by that God-centeredness. And when we combine the fear of God with the love of God, it creates in the hearts of the saints an immense appetite for God Himself. And there are so many statements in Scripture that describe this appetite. Listen to my favorite one from the 42nd Psalm. As the deer pants for flowing streams. And the psalmist is alluding to the habits of deer who are thirst-driven. They have to have a drink of cool water from a flowing river or they'll die. It's not a casual thing. I'm fine. Be nice to have a drink, but no need to. It's a desperation. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. There is one constant, Consistent trait that characterizes saints of all ages. It is without doubt their appetite for God alone. Let me ask you this morning. Take your pulse for a second. 
Does that really describe you? Are you a man or a woman who thirsts for God himself? Driven by desperation? Or are you religious? A service once in a while, buck in the plate, I'm good with God. Got my God thing, but the rest of the week, God's far from my thoughts, seeking Him in His book, praying, fasting, worshiping. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm fine. I can handle an hour on Sunday, but I'm good for the week. Or are you driven like David was? Who says, one thing have I desired of the Lord. That will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. I'm going to say something so doctrinally controversial. I think that many of us will be bored with heaven. <laughs> if I, I should take a picture with my iPhone of your faces right now. I have a problem with the doctrine that I'm bored with God on earth, but I'm going to be zapped away one day, and I'm suddenly going to take up as a full-time, everlasting vocation that which I found boring on earth. I don't know if I have scripture to justify this doctrine, but I believe it in my heart. Maybe it's why Paul says there's a crown of righteousness waiting for all those who love his appearing. And you would only love his appearing because you've loved, you've grown in love for God to such a degree that you can't wait till you get to see him. You know, before I became the pastor here, I traveled almost three weekends a month regularly for years. And I thank God for cell phones and email. I could email my wife and kids and I could call them and I did. But there was nothing compared to the moment when I stepped off the plane and there was my wife and kids. How many know there's nothing compared to presence? When the ones you love are actually all under your arms and you can touch them and kiss them. And that's the Christian life. That's why we have a doctrine called the second coming. It, it, those of you who are busy with charts trying to figure out when he's coming, just put your charts away. Most of them are wrong anyway. The real issue about the second coming is not figuring it out, but growing and becoming like the virgin in the song of Solomon who said, I am lovesick. I have to have Jesus return. I appreciate the Holy Spirit, the down payment that I have in this life, but I'm so hungry for Jesus, I want to see him. And when we contemplate in Scripture, the awesomeness of God in His infinite majesty and His power and His holiness, as well as the mercy that was poured out for us at Calvary, our hearts become captivated. And we begin to long to know Him. We become Ponce de Leon Christians, like the Apostle Paul. When I was a young believer, they told me, that Philippians was written near the end of Paul's life. And that bothered me because I was a young believer and I read Philippians 3 where Paul cries out and says, Oh, 
And I love the O's of Scripture. It's not like, oh. But it's like, oh, that I may know him. And I remember as a young believer, I'm not making this up. I was saved a couple years, and I took uh, our Bible class in in our church, and, and they told me Philippians was written near the end of his life, and I was confused because I read Paul at the end of his life saying, oh, that I may know him. And I remember thinking, don't you know him yet? And I tried to find a reason for such a statement. I thought, maybe maybe Paul was having a bad week when he wrote that. Maybe he was backslidden. Maybe he, I don't know. Don't you know him yet? Because in our church, you started knowing him, and then you went on to more profitable things like ministry. But in time, Paul's words rebuked my heart. And I learned that Paul didn't have the problem, I did. That knowing him is not an experience at the beginning of your walk and then you settle into Christendom and do your thing and find how to do it. That knowing him was an increased appetite and revelation and, and as your heart grows in knowledge of God, it makes you radically uh, desirous of more of God. And the thing about this reality is it's not settled or you're not satisfied by a little experience once in a while. There's something within you. It's the greatest hunger you've ever known driving you to know God and pressing you on to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. We'll talk about that in one of our installments. I think for me, the the thing that sums it up for Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, is what he says at the end of Romans 11. As we will see on Wednesday nights, Romans is the Magna Carta of Christianity. It's the most systematic book Paul ever wrote in explaining the gospel. And he covers all his bases from the sinfulness of man to the justifying grace of God to how God removes fallen people from Adam and places them in Christ, even how Israel fares in all of this and why most of the nation of Israel became hardened to the gospel. He answers all those questions. You'd think at the end of that section, he'd go, hallelujah, we figured it all out. But here's how he ends Romans 11. It's another O. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever amen what a way to end the doctrinal section of romans what can we say who could figure god out he's beyond knowing well here's the reality We've come to know him in Jesus Christ. And if you are one of those saints that I just described, whose hearts are hungry to press in and know him, then I invite you starting next week to come with me on a journey. We're not going to take this apart. We're not in a lecture. I realize this is a series of sermons, but I believe that as we by the Spirit behold Him, I think that 2 Corinthians 3 sums it up best. We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a glass the glory 
of the Lord are being transformed from glory to glory as we behold God. And of course, we behold Him as Christians, as He's revealed in the ultimate way He's revealed Himself to human beings through the person and work of His glorious Son, the second member of the Trinity, and the application of that work to the hearts and minds of believers by the Holy Spirit. I have asked for one thing over these next few weeks, that every one of you in this church, myself included, would have a God encounter. That as we learn about God, it would increase our desire for God and we would press in to God. I believe God uses two things, the knowledge of His Word and His Holy Spirit working in our lives to give us both theological knowledge and understanding of Scripture coupled with personal knowledge and the dealings of God. We learn that the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives and often in the hardest times in our lives when we're suffering the most and dealing with difficulties, it's actually the seedbed for greater understanding and revelation of God. I was studying the life of Abraham and I noticed something, that Abraham comes to impasses in his life, to serious crises, and he doesn't get out of those crises unless he gets a greater revelation of who God is. And right at the moment of crisis, God comes and reveals Himself in a greater way. And those of you who are always running from your sufferings and difficulties and rebuking the devil and thinking it's all the devil, don't be too quick. God may be allowing this very thing because He wants to reveal Himself to you in a greater way.